I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Please join me for a very warm welcome for Chris Krause and Zoe Pilger. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for hosting and Zoe for doing all this work to ask such informed questions. Um, We're going to start with a short reading. I'm going to read a little bit from My Love Dick and a little bit from Torpor. And then Zoe and I are going to talk about various common interests, I guess. I haven't read from this book for like, I mean, 10 years at least. It's so strange. But okay, here we go. Uh, Starting in the middle, uh, she's already started writing to Dick, and she's driving across country over the holidays. And Sylvain, her partner in crime, has left to spend the holidays with his family in France. As Chris drove east, she felt herself being sucked forward into a time tunnel. Christmas was getting closer. There were more Christmas songs on the radio, more Christmas decorations in every little town, as if Christmas was a cloud that descended on New York and feathered out across the West in broken strands. She was literally losing time by crossing time zones to the east, and driving pulled her farther away from what she knew. It was like that spatial optical illusion, being in a car stalled in a single lane of traffic. You panic because you think your car is moving by itself, and then you realize it's the other cars that are moving. Yours is standing still. Shawnee, Oklahoma, December 18th, 11.30, Central Standard Time, the American Motel, $25 a night. Well, Dick. I got lost in Oklahoma City, nearly out of gas, and couldn't find a room. The motel in the AAA book turned out to be a fuck palace by a topless bar, and everything else was full. It took another hour driving to find a vacancy here in Shawnee. There's a meatworks right across the road. By the, time I, by the time I realized I was on the wrong Oklahoma City bypass, there was construction, and it was too late to get off. I had to drive the 50-mile loop. Panic flashed me back to when I was traveling between New York, Columbus, Ohio, and Los Angeles last year. Panic. Late winter, 1993. Getting off the plane from L.A. and Columbus around midnight, suddenly and brutally ejected from the tube of business travel into the reality that Radisson and Hyatt airline platinum cards and Hertz preferred all insulate you from. The car I'd driven from New York was being fixed at the Columbus Subaru dealership under warranty. I caught a taxi to the Auto Mall Industrial Park Zone 15 miles outside the city. The duplicate car key was ready, but when we got there, the car was nowhere to be found. Suddenly, after seven hours in the tube, motel, taxi, plane to taxi, I'm left at 1 a.m. standing under car yard Klieg lights in the snow, guard dogs howling. The driver took me to the city, all barriers between us broken down, and he's ranting about wogs and how reading William Burroughs made him different from all the other cab drivers in Columbus, and could I tell him how to make a living as an artist? Well, no. And then the next day, driving, driving through the northeast blizzards, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, torn inside out. It was that Piscean time of year. I thought the snow would never melt white everywhere, and skinny, shaken stakes of northeast trees. Insulation makes us increasingly unable to respond to weather. All that month, I was seized by this unnameable emotion, nature's vengeance. The week I spent doing post-production at the Western Center in Columbus, I was sick with Crohn's disease, as if my body was negating the illusion of momentum. Functioning over waves of pain by day, throwing up at night. It's like a hysteria of the organs, walls of the intestines so swollen, it's impossible to eat or even drink a glass of water. The week before, on the plane ride from Columbus to Dallas, the entire business cabins filled with salesmen from the Pepsi-Cola Corporation. 
The one beside me is drunk and wants to talk about his reading habits, his passion for Len Dayton. Let me out. Oh, no. And then we're stuck in Dallas because a blizzard grounded the connection from Chicago. And it was there in the garden room of the DFW Hilton that I met David Drulo, the Jesuit priest. That night, I felt like something had been sucked out of me, and meeting David Drulo replaced it. Making eye contact in the restaurant line, I mistook him for oh, a software engineer from Amherst, good for 40 minutes chat about restoring country houses. But he turned out to be a genius who read Latin, Spanish, French, and Mayan, and believed that Chrissy Hind and Jimi Hendrix were avatars of Christ. David Druillo lived out of a storage bin in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and traveled around the country raising money for a Jesuit mission on the Guatemalan coast. More than a liberationist, he saw the church as the only force still capable of preserving vestiges of Mayan life. Of course, Druillo had read Simone Bell's Gravity and Grace. He owned Plant's first edition of it, recalled the thrill of finding it in Paris. For several hours, we talked about Val's life, activism and mysticism, France, trade unions, Judaism, and the Bhagavad Gita. I told him all about the title sequence I'd been making Columbus for my movie, named after Val's book. Pans across medieval battle maps and scenes superimposed with static World War II aerial surveillance target maps. History moving constantly and sometimes visibly underneath the skin of the present. Meeting David Drulo was like a miracle, an affirmation that some good still existed in the world. Back in Columbus, Bill Horrigan, media curator at the Wexner, asked me how I really managed to support myself. I was picking up the restaurant check and driving a new car, and obviously this cover story about an art school teaching job fooled no one. It's simple, I told him. I take money from Silvera. Was Bill bothered that such a marginal sexless hag as me wasn't living in the street? Unlike his favorites, Leslie Thornton and Beth B, I was difficult and unadorable and a bad feminist to boot. Oh, Bill, you should have seen me in New York in 1983 vomiting in the street. I was bruised with malnutrition on the Bellevue Welfare Board and hooked up to IV, not knowing what was wrong because the city's mandatory catastrophic care plan doesn't cover diagnostic tests. Silvera and I are Marxists, I told Bill Harrigan. He takes money from the people who won't give me money and gives it to me. <laughs> Money's abstract, and our culture's distribution of it is based on values I reject, and it occurred to me that I was suffering from the dizziness of contradictions, the only pleasure that remains once you've decided you know better than the world. Accepting contradictions means not believing anymore in the primacy of true feelings. Everything is true, and simultaneously. It's why I hate Sam Shepard and all your true West stuff. It's like analysis, as if the riddle could be solved by digging up the buried child. Dear Dick, today I drove across the panhandle of North Texas. I was incredibly excited when I hit the flatland west of Amarillo, knowing that the buried Cadillac piece would come up soon. Ten of them, a pop art monument to your car, Fins flapping, heads buried in the dust. I passed it on the highway, turned back, and took two photos of it for you. Dick, you may be wondering if I'm so wary of the mythology you embrace, why'd my blood start pumping 15 miles west of Amarillo? Why'd I used to get dressed up to go meet J.D. Austin in the Nightbirds bar so he could fuck me up the ass and say he didn't love me? Tight jeans, red lips, and nails this morning, feeling really, feeling really femme, and like time for this isn't on my side. It's a cultural study to be part of something else. So Vera and I are twinned in our, in our analytic bent, content with scrambling the codes. Oh, Dick, you eroticize what you're not, secretly hoping that the other person knows what you're performing and that they're performing too. Love, Chris. Thank you, Chris. That was great. Um, so maybe if we just start by talking about um, Torpor, the novel which is coming out, being yeah. reissued um, now. Um, so Jerome and Sylvia are going on this journey through Europe to Romania, 
ostensibly to adopt a child, um, which Jerome is very reluctant about and Sylvia is very enthusiastic about. And it, um, what's most striking to me about the book is this kind of imbalance of power um, in their marriage, the narrative of which is kind of weaved in with different bits of history. Um, there's a great quote um, from Torpa where it says, you write, with Jerome, Sylvie's finally found a way to be both bad and in control. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, please. Right, yeah, the imbalance of power. Mm. I don't know, I think equal relationships are greatly overrated. <laughs> um, it, yes, of course, there's an imbalance of power between the two. I mean, she's, um, you know, he's 18 years older, he's established in his career. She hasn't quite found out yet what she wants to do or is meant to do. He doesn't want to have a child. He already has a child. She desperately wants to have a child. He seems to have the final say on that. So, yeah, there's that constant kind of tension and power dynamic between them. But at the same time, as they're moving around and visiting people in Europe, in Jerome's world, Sylvie sees that there's a great imbalance of power between Jerome and his so-called friends in Europe he playing kind of a courtier role in relation to the people in French theory who he idolizes, and she sees firsthand how he's actually treated, certainly not as a peer, mm. but someone more as performing a service. Mm. So there, yes, there's kind of power dynamics abounding throughout the book between people in all sorts of situations. Mm. And there's a great scene which is um, set in Felix Guattari's Parisian loft. Um, yes, they have a huge <laughs> knob. He has a yeah, very rich, has a beautiful loft. Yeah, and there's this sort of soiree <laughs> where everybody's watching um, the Romanian Revolution live on TV, but Felix's much younger wife is upstairs watching MTV and smoking cigarettes and very bored. Right, um, right, and taking heroin. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe could you talk just a little bit about that? that particular scene um, in relation to sort of social hierarchy in the book and and class as well because Jerome has come from a different class than yeah. Felix. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the reasons that Jerome loved France for the US was because as a working class French Jew, he felt like he could never quite assimilate into the world that he was training to become part of. Um, I mean, and here it becomes tricky because I could almost say, I was about to say, well, Silvère was a student of Roland Barthes. Well, Jerome was a student of Roland Barthes. Um, in any event, I, I, I think, you know, certainly this kind of class question is an absent in the U.S. It determines a great deal. But in France, it's so shamelessly attenuated. Um, we published a book recently with semiotext. Maybe some of you have read it, um, called Return to Rim by Didier Elbaum. He's, he's a, um, a sociologist and a theorist, uh, gay French scholar, um, who writes in this book that like revealing the fact that he'd grown up working class was far more difficult and shameful than that, you know, it was very easy to be gay, but it was very hard to be publicly working class. So, yeah, in the book, Felix is not only at the top of his profession, but he has a lot, you know, he has family money that enables him to live like a prince wherever he is. And these circles in France were notoriously snobbish with rivalries between different camps and different factions around philosophers. And, you know, in the U.S., Jerome is considered the avatar of that, and it's as if he were one of these theorists, but when he's in France, it's another thing entirely. Hmm. And, you know, observing the way people have changed their accents, et cetera, and what kind of French is spoken, et cetera. Hmm. But I'm sure that, I mean, there's tons of analogies with that here. Hmm. And, um, I mean, the Holocaust also looms very large in the novel because Silver, or Silver, Jerome, yes. is a survivor. Um, and I think at one point, Sylvie says it was her, his absence which turned her on. And it's that kind of his relation to memory and forgetting as well, which is something that you write about in a really wonderful way. Mm -hmm. 
I really got into thinking and reading about historical trauma mm. while I was working on the book. Kathy Kuru's work about trauma mm. was fantastic for that. Mm. Um, and George Perec, mm. who actually had been a contemporary of Jerome slash mm. Silvers, and they actually had, you know, started a magazine together mm. when they were students called The General Line that was like a bunch of um, young guys, like 18-year-old guys, all French Jews, all students, all had lost parents during the war and uh, all had been hidden as children. And the last thing they wanted to talk about was the war. No one ever mentioned it. They talked about American culture, they talked about Westerns, they talked about fashion, they talked about anything but. And you know, and then Parekh went on to write about that so beautifully in W and some of his other works. Mm. But I mean, it proved so difficult for so many of them to write about it. Um, there's a beautiful Sarah Kaufman book and maybe some people have read that, called Rue She was also a contemporary of Perec and Jerome Silvers. They, they all knew each other. And uh, she also was a hidden child during the war. And um, she wrote a tiny, she was a, a, psych, a psychoanalytic theorist for all of her career. And she wrote a tiny little book about her experience in the war. Um, I guess as she was getting into her 60s, that's when they all started wanting to confront it somehow at that mm -hmm. age, after closing the door on it all their lives. And, you know, and she killed herself, like, shortly after the book came out, which mm. is awful mm. and congruous, not incongruous. Mm. Um, there's a line as well, um, just jumping ahead slightly, um, to I Love Dick, um, which I'm sort of paraphrasing. Um, oh, here it is. Transcendence isn't only lightness, it's attained by will. And there's a really memorable scene in Torpor where Jerome is walking down the street in New York and he's starving himself and he's reached this kind of self-contained elation and then peace through fasting. And that kind of themes of anorexia and self-denial and food run through a lot of your writing. Um, I was just wondering, particularly as well in Aliens and Anorexia, where you talk about the work of the philosopher Simone Bay and also the artist Paul Theck. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, please. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a modernist romance, but it's not untrue either. Um, I mean, I guess you could both say that Simone Thiel and Paul Tech, the artists that they lived in different times, were both kind of modernist figures. But in both cases, you see people kind of pursuing these ideas um, despite great adversity and somehow kind of working themselves into a pitch of grace. And I mean, I think that's, that's what poets do. That's, I mean... You know, however people do it, mm. in order to create at a certain level of, ten of intensity, they need to kind of work themselves into that kind of strange state. Mm. And that somehow relates to Jerome's survival as well as an adult in the novel. Yeah, well, I mean, in the case of Jerome in the novel, he's starving himself. And I kind of a, a, a common thing among all of these trauma survivors is that they do things in life to try and replicate the intensity of danger that they felt during the event. Even if they don't want to recall the event itself, they become intensity junkies. And so the Jerome character, he does that by starving. Um, other people with that background or with any, any kind of violent trauma background, torture survivors, other people, do these kind of like from the outside absolutely bizarre things to put themselves at personal risk just to because the only time they feel alive, truly alive, is when they're in that state of intensity connected to the moment of the trauma. Another, just changing the subject slightly, um, I did an event in August on the re-edition of Kate Chopin's The Awakening, which is obviously a fem um, novel about coming into consciousness as a feminist, written in 1899. And I wondered in what ways torpor is a sort of feminist coming into consciousness novel because at the beginning Sylvie is this kind of 
Well, she has no definite career of her own. She's dependent on Jerome. And then by the end, she describes starting to write letters to a man, love letters to a man who doesn't love her, which is the beginning of, well, we imagine I love Dick and right. Sylvie's career as a writer. Um, so, I mean, did you want to give it that kind of arc of hers towards freedom? I think the only interest that these books might be of interest to people all these years later is because they're not just the story of Sylvie's coming of age. I mean, it's always a person's struggle in a larger world. So in the case of her coming into her own at the end of Torpor, she moves to L.A., she starts writing, she enters the world, she can have a career. But it's no longer the same world. I mean, the career that she longed for doesn't really exist anymore. And the meaning of what it is to be an artist by that time has become so debased and so changed and so available to one, providing one follows a kind of formulaic set of rules, that her triumph is a very empty triumph. So it's a kind of, you know, yes, she wins, but it's a very flat victory because the world has changed. Hmm. And actually, that's one thing that I really love as well in your work is in Torpe, you describe it as willful amateurism. Um, of Sylvie's friends who maybe were artists but never managed to turn their creativity into careers and never professionalised and so sort of dropped by the wayside versus the world of professionalised MFA um, graduates and academics where there's no room anymore for accident and failure and mistake and surprise and all the things which do make interesting art. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, yes, yes, that's a part of both books, you know, the kind of people who've fallen by the wayside in those worlds. And I mean, that's always that story is part of the story of art. It's part of every story of every historical era of art. And um, in Where It Belongs, it was a book of art essays that I did a few years ago. I checked the history of this alternative gallery in Los Angeles that was open for a couple of years and then closed. And I went back and I wrote the history of it two years later while everyone still kind of remembered stuff. And um, it was really, I think, if I hadn't written that essay, the whole, I mean, if I hadn't written the essay, nobody would really remember the gallery. And there's something... Great. I mean, actually, it's something I said I didn't want to talk about semiotics, but maybe I do, because <laughs> something that it seems we're committed to doing with semiotics, with the list that we choose, is a kind of revised historiography. Like when we decided to do the David Wanerowitz book, um, our focus, that was a book ostensibly about the artist David Wanerowitz, but in fact, it was these long, long, long conversations that Silver had with his friends and contemporaries shortly after he died. All of these people were artists. All of these people had worked with David in various ways. Some of them were well-known in the art world, but the majority were not. But they were all there participating at a certain time on the same level. And it's fascinating to read these 10, 12,000 word conversations with people telling the stories of the people whose stories kind of get washed over in the flood of the kind of hagiography of the single artist. Mm -hmm. um, so we seem to keep wanting to do that, to go back into historical periods and bring things up that we think have did not come out properly the first time round. We did that with the work of Penny Arcade. We, we published, uh, we're about to republish all of Gary, uh, Gary Indiana's books. We did a book of his plays. And while we don't want to be completely mired in the past, that's not our whole list, we feel very strongly um, about putting forward an alternative history. Mm. Um, okay, you'll get on to <laughs> I Love Dick in that case. Um, I really I reread I Love Dick this weekend for the second time, and I got, I think, even more from it than I did the first time, and it's just such a exceptional and special book um there's so much that i'd like to ask you about it that i'll try and boil it down to just a few um questions um 
do you want to just, for those people who haven't read the book, would you mind just setting up the scenario okay. of what, it, what, what it's about? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chris Krauss is a 39-year-old experimental filmmaker. Silver Lochinger is a 56-year-old Columbia University professor. He's on sabbatical because they're constantly moving around to pay for her films that don't go anywhere and to pay for his daughter's private school that he can't afford because his salary has been frozen for 20 years at Columbia. They're living in a rural slum about 76 miles out of LA called Crestline, California, in complete isolation where he's attempting for the sixth or seventh time to write his book about modernism and the Holocaust. While in Crestline, they're invited to have dinner with Dick Blank, according to the book. He's never named in the book. Um, who is uh, recently arrived from London and teaching at CalArts. They spend an interesting evening together. Dick flirts with Chris. Chris responds. They stay the night because there's going to be bad weather going back up the mountain that night, and Dick invites them to stay the night. When they wake up, Dick is gone. And she um, fantasizes, since she'd been kind of fantasizing all night, you know, that she was sleeping with Dick rather than with Silver. She fantasizes that this had actually been a kind of, you know, um, romance, one night stand between her and Dick. And from there, the fabulation only gets worse. Um, in fact, he went out to buy eggs and bacon to make them breakfast, but they don't learn that until much later. Um, they go home and she starts writing letters to Dick, but she's too shy to send them. And Sylvia sees what he's doing and he thinks he, he's like so tired of trying to write this book, this depressing book. He's like so excited by what she's doing that he thinks, oh, I'll play too. And they start passing their laptop back and forth to each other and writing love letters to this third party, Dick Blank. <laughs> Thank you. And, well, and then other things happen too, but that's the <laughs> Thank you. That was... Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's a long tradition of uh, male artists and writers who use the female muse and abstract her and idolise her and hold her at a distance as a means to create... The, their desire for her generates their work of art. Um, but it's far less usual to find a female writer or artist who puts herself in that position of pursuer and creator um, and renders the male the muse. Um, the only other I can think of, apart from I Love Dick, is Sophie Carl um, and some of her projects. And at one point you say, and I, I Love Dick, something like this is a sort of Carl-like project. Um, but I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit of what is at stake for a woman to write, put herself in that position and, and write in that way. Yeah. I mean, the muse thing, it's so funny because usually when you think of a male writer writing to a female muse, it's, it, it's all about beauty, right? And these innate qualities of kind of intuition, fertility, and grace. <coughs> It's hardly like he's, he's not writing to a person. He's certainly not writing to an intelligence. So um, the idea of flipping it is like utterly ridiculous. Who would write such a letter to a man? But we could imagine conceivably if the letters in I Love Dick are written not to those qualities, but to a male kind of public figure and intelligence. I mean, most of what she knows about Dick is either through the image that he projects in person or through reading his books. I mean, you could imagine, actually, the reverse happening. I'm, my next project is a critical biography of Kathy Acker. And it's surprising, because one would think that Kathy would be an ideal target for that kind of letter. I mean, she set herself very, up very much like the kind of you know, Dick figure of like, you know, not just an intellectual, but kind of, you know, cowboy, outlaw, sexual, intel I mean, all of these kind of very powerful things mm. put together in a single package. So one could write letters to Kathy Acker, where she's still alive. 
or when, I mean, I met, uh, Kathy herself wrote letters to people, you know, Dear Susan Sontag, make me famous. So <laughs> it's possible that, you know, letters could be written to kind of female figures in a similar way. Mm. Dear, what, Judith Butler? <laughs> Not so much. I'm sure, I'm sure Judith has received a few of those in her time. Um, what, one of the things that really fascinated me about I Love Dick is at one point you call it a schizophrenic project and the exploration of schizophrenia in it is fascinating and um, you also talk about Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. R.D. Lang and say the one thing R.D. Lang never understood is that the divided self is female subjectivity. And there are all these incredible links between schizophrenia and the state of falling in love, finding coincidences in the cosmos, which seem magical. Um, but also being a woman, as you write, and being divided against yourself and forced into that position by circumstances beyond your control. And I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about Absolutely. those ideas, please. But if I could just back up for a second, of course, Zoe, I didn't make the connection, but you do exactly the muse thing in your book. Yeah. Yeah, eat my head up. <laughs> I mean, your character has chosen this woman, I forgot the character name. Stephanie Hay. Yeah, right, right, right. But she, she, she's kind of like singled her out, and then it all kind of flips back on itself, and it becomes this kind of crazy loop. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, about the schizophrenia question. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, when I was writing that and reading R.D. Lang and some of his contemporaries, it's just like, you know, the, I mean, even at that late date, the sexism of it was overwhelming. You know, um, of course, a girl, I mean, there was, it was still kind of a controversial thing for like a girl to be trying to distinguish herself in some intellectual field or endeavor. Um, and it's a constant, I mean, just, just, just the kind of expectations of that one would be brilliant and competitive and supine and vulnerable and lovable all in the same body are like completely schizophrenic and unrealistic expectations that women would then be held accountable for and criticized for not mm. being. Um, someone else was emailing with me today about, oh, the writer Leslie Jameson, I think, is writing something now about vulnerability. And that's another kind of strange characteristic quality that is so much more often ascribed to female experience and also kind of used to bludgeon women, mm. you know, a woman being not vulnerable enough, you know, vulnerability becoming kind of the same as compliant and coy. Mm. And it's, it's a very different kind of um, equation that is for men. Mm. So that's one part of, you know, that's one way that the book talks about schizophrenia. Mm. And then the other part of the book is like the, the last chapter added up kind of it was on the public record that the writer Dick Blank had experienced a couple of schizophrenic episodes. So in completing the book, Chris felt that she had to come as close to a schizophrenic condition as possible to thereby empathize and fuse completely with her addressee. 
Mm. Hence the writing about schizophrenia. So there's all these readings and interpretations of the readings of schizophrenia. And also trying to understand, actually, she, the Chris character, tends to be like a magnet for schizophrenics in her life. They just kind of come right to her. And trying to understand the logic of the schizophrenics that she knows, mm. you know, how they how their how their perception and the, how their minds work. I mean, so she's trying to kind of get inside schizophrenia mm. to write about it. In the same way that like if you're writing about an artist's work, you try mm. and kind of jump inside somehow mm. to the artist's work and where it's coming from and what they're trying to do mm. rather than just give some kind of analytical overview. Mm. Um, and I suppose maybe in relation to how I started off by asking you about the imbalance of power in the marriage between Sylvie and Jerome in Torpet, um, and you rightly pointed out the novel is also about history, and history is a huge part of it. Um, at one point in I Love Dick, you say women are denied the apersonal or the impersonal, and any writing or art by women is presumed to be just a reflection or an expression of their psychological, emotional state rather than being a work of ideas. And I think I Love Dick is very much a work of ideas, which you were telling me before um, was really subject to nasty criticism when it was first published in 1997. Um, do you still think it's a radical position for women to use that first person fictional voice and in what ways? Yeah, I mean, that, that continues, you know. Um, a female first person is read as memoir. A male first person is read as autofiction and discussed accordingly. Why is that? Well, <laughs> obviously, because people still think that there's something so murky and compromised and dirty about female experience that to write from it can only constitute a confession. <laughs> um, related to that, there's a brilliant quote from I Love Dick where you write, why does everybody think that women are debasing themselves when we expose the conditions of our own debasement? Yeah, I was kind of writing, I was writing about the artist Hannah Wilkie and I was trying to kind of write that in her tracks. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly what she did. I mean, that became the subject, the, kind of the failure of her work for the last half of her career became the subject of her work. And people still didn't get it. People still didn't get it. Um, you know, and, and people write about her work. Art critics would write about her work in such a kind of sleazy way. I remember one review, quote unquote, in the Village Voice, that, you know, Hannah Wiener's cunts have become as familiar to us as an old shoe. <laughs> That's too much. Um, and then the same thing happened to me, shockingly. I never thought that it would, but the same thing happened to me when I Love Dick came out. I mean, people didn't get it. I was telling people, line by line, exactly how to read this book, but they didn't want to do it. They wanted to read it the other way. So the first round of reception when the book came out in 98 was that this is so embarrassing it's an act you know you know it, it's an exercise in self-debasement she's a masochist um a book not so much written as secreted art forum that's shocking um i think we're nearly time for questions from the audience but um, just to end uh, there's a really beautiful line in I Love Dick where you write we fall in love in hope of anchoring ourselves to someone else to keep from falling and I just wanted to ask you when women fall, I mean falling is something that I'm really interested in and it's a theme in Eat My Heart Out but so much of culture still demands that women put love at the centre of their lives in a way that is not demanded of men. And, I mean, I guess I wanted to ask you, what is at stake for a woman when she falls in that way, as opposed to what might be at stake for a man? 
And in what way does keeping Dick as a, at a distance as a sort of blank page onto which she could project all of her fantasies really offer maybe the best possible scenario <laughs> for a woman artist? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's not a complete gender difference, but certainly it's a gender skew that women attach more to that than men. But, I mean, the idea of falling is a wonderful idea, you know, uh, for any person of any gender. The idea of, like, losing this position that you use all this kind of tension and struggle to maintain and just kind of giving it up and letting yourself go somewhere else and fall under the influence. I mean, to fall in love is to fall under the influence, and that's, like, a really great thing. <laughs> Thank you. I think we're ready for questions from the audience. Oh, so I should say, I am really severely hearing impaired, and probably I'm not going to hear your questions, so Zoe's going to paraphrase them. Um, you mentioned that you moved into the third person for Torpor, having written I Love Dick in the first... <clears throat> And that was because it was more personal or too personal. And you've talked a little bit about the reaction to I Love Dick. And I wondered if you could elaborate on the decision to introduce the distance of, of the third person narrator. Oh, yeah. You're talking about the third person versus the first between the two books? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny. You know, that first round of critics thought I Love Dick was so kind of such an exposure and so personal. I didn't think it was personal at all. I mean, it was kind of a series of shicks, of rips, stand-up comedy routines on female experience, you know, that anybody can relate to. There was nothing terribly personal about it. Um, but to look at the backstory, to look at the situation of like how that might have come to be, what that couple was, and the historical trauma background in Jerome's past, that was really personal. I mean, and to talk about the abortions and the desire to have children, and I, together with the collapse of history, I mean, all of that was really personal um, in a way that I Love Dick was not. And I felt like I needed, in order to make the book work, to be extremely disrespectful of the two characters, of Sylvie and Jerome, to be able to turn them into like a Punch and Judy, turn them into little clowns and kind of bat them around and make fun of them in a way that if I did it with our real names, people would say, oh, she hates herself, she hates him, how could you do that? So there was a freedom in giving the two people character names so that you could say things that were truly um, personally revealing in ways that were specific to that person. Ruth Novacek. Hi. You can maybe hear me, see me. Kind um, of. Since, since I read I Love Dick when it came out when I was living in New York, and everyone I knew who read it just thought it was the most fantastic... I mean, it was like nothing we'd ever seen before. It was like the kind of book we were longing for. It was funny. It talked about the wider world as well as the subjective. So I'm shocked that, you know, people just saw it as not an innovative kind of amazing thing but but the, you did gather at that point this huge audience of really lesbian artists who were interested in how you could pull art subjectivity and everything into the same frame and have a much bigger position as you know the muse thing is is quite interesting this pulling things together into the same frame to actually make a bigger space for women to talk about the truth of things, which you, you said something about semiotext foreign agent series being, well, if the men had French subjectivity, American women artists could have subjectivity <laughs> for yeah. themselves. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I think that's true. There, I mean, it's not, it's not as if the book was like universally bashed. There were some people who definitely really picked up on it. Um, but, you know, sort of publicly, and I really wanted to be taken seriously as a writer by other writers, that didn't happen. That took a much longer time to have happened. But, yeah, definitely, I mean, there were people also defending the book when it was being attacked, and that was really important. I suppose what I'm saying is that for, for me and my friends in New York at the time, you were kind of 
attacking on several front attacking that's a bad word but you were dealing with women subjectivity innovation art the world the world of men the world of ideas the world of french intellectuals the world of translation transatlantic conversations all at once and in a way it's like now it seems it's all coming together yeah would you say <laughs> but where where does the art why do you think you have such an incredible like lesbian following <laughs> I don't know all of my friends always lesbians <laughs> it's a sensibility um you know when we did the Native Agencies, the first round, when it was like, you know, uh, first person writing by mostly women, and, and we toured Germany, the Germans were like, look at that bunch of lesbians. I mean, we weren't all lesbians, it was like, but they all look like lesbians. Um, I mean, for a long time, it was like, it was like, I mean, really, seriously, though, for a long time, it was like that slot in the culture to talk about experience and ideas in the same breath if you were female, really seemed to be only allowed to lesbians. You know, it took a really long time for that door to seem to be open to straight women. And that's part of what I'm kind of railing against in the book and trying to sort of stake out a kind of lesbian ground as a straight woman. And just, I suppose, following on from that, like, how do you see or what's the tension between... Um, wanting to exist on a kind of periphery of a of a of a system or of a way of thinking or of a critique or of institution, and also wanting to be recognised by it, or, if, or maybe perhaps I'm missing the point. But I think there's something kind of I thought it was something interested in saying. Well, I wasn't taken seriously, and I wanted to be taken seriously. And art forum said this. Okay, I could use a paraphrase. Um, Someone might have to paraphrase me. Um, what's the um, so? There's a tension between being on the periphery, maybe, and also wanting to be recognised by these cultural institutions. Yeah. So people like art forums' opinion still counts, even though you are critiquing and rejecting so much of what those institutions stand yes. for. Yes. So there's an energy in that, in being on the periphery unable to say what you want about these institutions, even though they're not going to love you back for it. Yeah, definitely. And I guess over the years and writing about art, that's something that I've had to navigate a little bit, um, realizing at a certain point that it would be hypocritical to continue writing as I did in I Love Dick as an outsider, because I wasn't really an outsider anymore. I was totally complicit with that world, and so I had to kind of change a little bit and find another place to write from. Um, you mentioned earlier about art writing, and you said that instead of <coughs> when you're writing about art, instead of being analytical, you have to jump inside the artwork to write about it. And I was just wondering if you could explain that a little bit more, about what, what does that mean to jump, a jump inside the artwork in order to write about it? To, uh, oh, jumping inside the artwork yeah. in order to write about it. Yeah, I don't know. I've just finished writing essays about a couple of very, very strong artists, about German artist Kirsten Rauch and the New Zealand artist Simon Denny. And in both cases, I don't know, I found I had to really, really... I mean, I, I can't really write about an artist's work unless I try in some way to get inside it and see what their jokes are and what their references are and what they're really trying to do, and how the various elements are playing off against each other. I mean, I just try and like project myself as much as possible into the artist's head to understand his or her work. And that seems to be really the only worthwhile way to write about it, because this kind of analytic placement of it within a kind of art world constellation, it's kind of, you know, I mean, it's useful, of course, and that comes into it. But it's easily done. It's very, there's something very glib about it. And it's much more interesting to me when someone kind of penetrates something about what is really the essence of what's going on in that work. But do you think that by doing that, by jumping inside of it or going inside the artist's head, do you end up writing about yourself as well? Because you're 
you're in it as well. So like part of you is going to come out in that writing. It's not... Well, yeah, I mean, you're bringing your presence to it for sure. And you're bringing your kind of, you know, spontaneous observations and impressions to it. But you're not necessarily talking. I mean, these things are not written in the first person. They're not about me. They're about the... But I mean, it's necessarily so. Anyone who's really writing about another person is also writing as themselves. And it's a meeting between the two. And actually, I guess that's what I'm going to be talking about at Raven Road this week, about you know working on Kathy, you know, writing a critical biography that's trying to be a more active and literary kind of biography. I mean, it has to be some kind of autofiction turned inside out, where you're trying to meet the other person on their own terms, as they've defined them, and then react to that in the present in front of the reader. Thank you. Um, you just mentioned the biography on uh, the right about Kathy Acker. I wonder if you could talk about what drew you to Kathy Acker and then maybe about your process or how you go about trying to write a new, a new book in that way. Well, I thought I was going to write the Kathy book back in 2000. I didn't know Kathy, but I was very moved by her death. She had been the last serious girlfriend of Silvera before Silvera and I got together. And he went to visit her a few times when she was dying in Tijuana, when Matias was taking care of her. And Kathy, to the extent that she knew me, she didn't like me at all because I was with Silvera and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I went down with him and I, I saw the place. I didn't visit with her, but I saw the place where she died. And I saw, you know, relative to her enormous fame at certain moments, how few people really were around for it in the end. And I found that incredibly poignant and chilling. And so two years later, I went and I tracked down 12 or 14 people who had been close to her. And I talked to them. I did long interviews with them. Um, Martha Valls, there are other people from way back in her past. But then... I didn't, it was too close. It wasn't time for me to do it yet. I didn't really feel like I had, I wanted to write another book. So I put it away. Um, just like about a year and a half ago, somebody in London actually asked me if I wanted to write a little monograph, like a, like a, like a kind of scholarly monograph about Kathy's work. And I ended up not doing it. But as soon as I started thinking of that as a possibility, everything changed. That it would be like a critical biography and as such, it becomes, I mean, partly about her work, the first half of her body of work, I very much admire. But also, it's a way of moving through periods of history by tracking a person. And I find that really fascinating, you know, because she moved through so many different milieu. And in fact, part of my mission here, these two weeks in London, is to find people who can help me learn more about what that scene was in London in the 80s. That's the one point where I'm really, really weak. You know, New York, I understand. San Diego, LA, I understand. San Francisco, whatever it was that she was part of in the 80s in London, I'm really trying to learn more about. And the process is like this. I mean, this is a gestation process of like, what are we saying? 14 years, right? Um, it takes a long time. I mean, to write a book, you have to really be troubled about something to want to go through the discomfort and privation of like, you know, writing pages day after day after day and writing a book. So it's a very, very long gestation period. And then like finally it's like it's ready to become something. Do you have, do you have a favorite of her books? And when is it coming out? <laughs> I guess, well, I love, I love um, Childlike Life of the Black Tarantula. Yeah. And, um, Plugging Gods and Good Expectations. But especially if you haven't read it, check out Childlike Life of the Black Tarantula. She self-published that as a male art scene in six sections. And I mean, that was like a nuclear bomb set off and kind of the minimalist, the still minimalist art world in New York. That was like just so perfect. It was such an intervention. Um, just a, a strange um, question. We were talking about you in, at school, and, and our tutor said, um, Chris Krauss is obsessed with real estate, and nobody ever talks about it. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, what is your, what is your interest in, in real estate? 
Oh, well, can I direct you to this book here? <laughs> I talk more about real estate and more explicitly in this book, and I wouldn't say obsessed, but it is how I make my living, more or less. I mean, I could never make a living off what I make as a writer, touring, giving readings, writing catalog essays and art reviews. I would be living a very, very marginal and scrappy life if I depended on that. So, I mean, at a certain moment, you know, there'd been all this house flipping during the life with Silvera because we were always so broke. And at a certain moment when, like, my art school job seemed to be kind of being taken away from me class by class, like waitressing shifts, I decided instead of trying to fight for it, I would either fight for it or I would do something else. So I just decided to professionalize what I had been doing with a sort of domestic house flipping and to buy um, investment property, apartment buildings. Uh, and I picked Albuquerque, and I bought apartment buildings in kind of low-income areas, and rehabbed them to try and make them kind of the best of their kind. And that's it. I mean, it's like it's a part-time social project, and it also supports me. You mentioned in another... Um answer that you thought that fiction had become more conservative and generally mainstream fiction, uh, that, that it, was more, it was more interesting what was happening in the art world. Um, and I agree, but I wondered whether you had any ideas about why that is. I mean, mostly it's because of the, corporate, the change in the corporate structure and the way, you know, in the 90s already presses were being bought up by larger presses and then those larger presses were being bought up by media conglomerates. So now you have a situation, I mean, think there were, used to be all these small publishing companies that could make a modest profit and keep going year after year after year, and that just doesn't exist anymore in, in any, any kind of publishing anywhere in the world that I know of. And so what happens is just, you know, two or three kind of highlight titles are selected each season for, you know, total um, carpet bomb promotion. Everywhere you look, the book is favorably reviewed. There's not even a discourse about said book. And pretty much everything else on the list is kind of passes under the wire. Um, so I think it has to do with, like, you know, publishing of the, the corporate structure having become so incredibly hegemonic. And, like, you know, they can invest in make, they can invest this money and they count on making four or five hits in this slice of the genre every season. And that's it. And then, and then everybody, comes, everybody else kind of falls in line. You know, it's very rare that you see a critical review of a heavily promoted title. Nobody dares. Uh, the atmosphere in the art world seems a little freer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this might be slightly uh, off, off to the side, but I wanted to ask a graphic design question. <laughs> I had, I really had this feeling when reading I Love Dick that not only in the book I was having a kind of strange dialogue about who you were, who the character was, how I felt about it, but I also had this really external moment sitting on the tube with this outward-facing title, like I Love Dick, that that's what I was reading. Um, but also I think like the, the quality of... The, the materials in the books are such that they feel they have a sort of like strange authority to them in their in their sort of sheen and in their like minimalism um, and I wonder if that's something conscious or or how you go about making design decisions well that's really wonderful and I'll pass that on to Hetty <laughs> but that's entirely Hetty Alcalti's decisions and department. He redesigned, when he joined us in 2001, he redesigned the books and kind of brought them out of the 80s from the Foreign Asian series and into the present. And he has really, really good taste and good judgment. Just something, we talked about this a while ago, but there's, there's this, a lot of caring that runs, and it sounds really kind of tacky, but there's a lot of caring that runs through and, and I think the real estate thing shouldn't be misunderstood, this renovation. We've talked about this desire to renovate, this desire to find an orphan, you know, to take a dog from a shelter, to, to renovate yourself, 
to to get better from Crohn's, to to get away from like people who don't love you. All of this, you know, there's there's something very, sorry to say, kind of hippie almost going on within something that's also very worldly, very punk, very art world, very kind of you you basically champion emerging, unknown, underrated artists. You know, there's all this kind of picking up something from the kind of, that isn't kind of up there with all the kind of glitz. Same with the art world. I mean, you, you know, where art, you've also talked about the commercialization of art. There's a kind of, um, I've lost the word now, a kind of regenerative kind of thing about transformation going on through, through everything in your work, really. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, that that's true of my work and it's true of the whole Semiotech project mm. or really anybody who starts an independent press. I mean, it comes out of love and vindication, right? Mm. Love for what you and your friends are doing and a belief that it's important and it deserves to be shared and spread and a vindication against the existing order that you feel your friends are being excluded from. And otherwise, what would give you the energy to do it? Mm. Well, thank you. I think that's a very nice way to end. Thank you, Chris. Chris Cross, thank you very much. And Zoe, thank you. And The White Review, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>